Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. I mean, a founder that has done it multiple times, you know, done the whole, you know, cycle of building, scaling, financing, exiting. Uh, and I think that we're going to be covering very interesting topics about starting companies, why to start the company, why not to start the company, who to raise from, you know, or perhaps, you know, going through the process or the difference between perhaps starting a company in the U.S. versus starting a company in Europe. So very, very interesting and at the same time relevant topics. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andrew Lacey. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane, Andrew. You were born in Australia. And obviously today, as the people that are listening, they can sense the battle of the accents here going on. But give us, uh, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Melbourne? I mean, Melbourne and Australia is a great place to live and a great place to grow up. It's, on the one hand, super family-oriented, um, uh, quality-of-life-oriented. But then on the other hand, it's just so far away from everything in the world. And like most Australians, when I first left Australia as an adult, I left for two years. So we all tend to leave for a long time because it just takes so, so damn long to get out of the country in the first place. Um, but no, it, it was a, you know, I had a fantastic childhood there from, you know, 20 years later. Now I've been out of the country for 15 years and still have very fond memories of the place. Now, one thing that is very interesting, I find on the, on the culture that perhaps, you know, you grew up, uh, in there in Australia is that once, especially at the time, I think that now, you know, things are a little bit more open, more open, you know, uh, at least, you know, on the way that people think about careers, but the way that thing, think people were thinking through things was you would finish school and then you become a lawyer or you become a doctor. And in this case, you became a lawyer and, and it was not what you had hoped for. Yeah, in Australia, they have this uh, interesting university system where you don't really need to apply to university. They're, they're, every year there's a book that's published and based on the score you got in high school, you could choose any course that um, you had a score higher than what was required to get into. So if you did well in high school, which is what I did, you can more or less just kind of choose whatever course uh, you wanted to study at, as undergrad. And so I ended up choosing law. I thought it was interesting um, to be able to solve problems in the context of cases. I you know, fell in love with um, all of the sort of courtroom drama that you see on television. And I thought, man, this would be a great career. So in, in your case, you know, going into consulting, you know, I'm sure that that was pretty interesting, you know, more than anything to um, to really understand how to tackle problems and how to deal with problems, you know, perhaps grabbing a big problem, you know, breaking it down into small problems and then going one after the other. I guess in your case, you know, what, what do you think, you know, that experience at McKinsey taught you? Yeah, so I guess the arc of my life in some ways was that I've always been solving problems. So when I studied law, this was about solving problems. The main thing I really didn't like about law was that the problems that you were trying to solve were often things that happened 10 years in the past. Even when you were trying to win a case, you weren't even talking about the law today. You were talking about the law as it was at the time that something happened, you know, uh, well in the past. And uh, I found that deeply unsatisfying. And, uh, and uh, very shortly after 
getting into law, I was exposed to McKinsey, which is a big consulting company, and ended up moving over there and becoming a consultant. And here I felt um, was this fantastic blend of I was solving problems again, but here rather than solve problems that happened in the past, I was really helping companies figure out how to um, respond to what's going on in the environment. And my focus actually at McKinsey was at the time, think back to the early, the late uh, 90s and the early 2000s was, you know, this threat of the internet and or the opportunity of the internet and what our clients could do to take advantage of that. So I ended up spending most of my time focusing on that area. Now, you know, one thing that uh, that is very interesting is before McKinsey, you were part of the whole, you know, working with for the government, taking a look at the innovation. So you had already a glimpse of of that. So I guess, you know, being at McKinsey, you had that seed already planted because eventually you went to uh, Stanford to do your MBA. And I'm sure that that fueled things even more on, on, on wanting to perhaps, you know, doing something of your own. But then eventually you had to go back because McKinsey was obviously paying for the MBA. So I guess two questions here. One, how was that experience of being in the land of innovation, you know, with all these people starting all types of companies and what you got from that? And then also how painful it was to get back to corporate. It's really interesting. I, um, even before I went to study the MBA, I had a brief period where I was dating someone who was um, living in Silicon Valley. And I don't know what, this might say something about me, or maybe this is an experience that even yourself had when you first came over. But I remember this distinct, distinctly um, rollerblading down El Camino Real in Silicon Valley, again, 20 years ago. And we, and we would rollerblade by companies like Yahoo or eBay. And for me, I found it just so fascinating coming from Australia that there are actually companies, like there are people sitting in offices doing something that, you know, ends up being a web page that people interact with no matter where they are in the world. And it was sort of like a big eye-opening moment for me. And I sort of fell in love ever since. And it took me several years to actually kind of get myself in a place where I could be found in companies. But there was that energy and enthusiasm tw even 20 years ago in Silicon Valley um, that really makes the place really special. Um, it was hard. It was very, very difficult studying an MBA in Stanford and seeing your friends go and start companies and not doing it yourself for whatever reason. And I'm sure a big part of it was me just not having the guts at the time. Um, I was actually meant to go to McKinsey in, in San Francisco. I thought I would be so miserable being in the Silicon Valley and not being an entrepreneur that I actually rang around and uh, managed to um, transfer my job to the Madrid office of McKinsey. And so I ended up working in Spain for two years um, uh, just because, you know, at least then I would have an interesting cultural experience um, while I was sort of uh, waiting down the clock at McKinsey. And hey, you know, having good wine and, and tapas is not a bad thing at all. So um, that was a good choice. I mean, obviously, I'm a little bit biased. But, uh, but anyhow, you know, this was the immediate step before you went at it and you took charge and, and started your first company. So how was that process like of uh, saying, you know what, let's, let's go. It's time. Well, I was still a bit reluctant even after leaving McKinsey. I came back to the Bay Area to hopefully join a high-tech company. And my background, having a law degree, having worked at McKinsey and having an MBA were not valued at all by any tech companies 20 years ago. It was almost, these are red marks on your uh, resume. So I actually found it easier to start a company than it was to work at another company back then. 
Um, and uh, my first company was a, was a company called uh, Tapulous. Uh, and it, it ended up being a really fa fantastic and fascinating journey. Uh, it was the very, very first iPhone company. So uh, two months, two or three months after the iPhone launched, it started getting hacked by uh, young kids actually out of Europe who had uh, sort of hacked into it and learned that they could put other apps on the phone. And uh, we saw, my partner and I saw this tremendous underground activity that was happening on the iPhone. And we realized, I think, earlier than anyone else that this was going to be a whole new platform. This wasn't just another phone. Um, and so we started the company. We ended up running the underground app store before the real app store launched. We had over 10 million installs and uh, you know, saw this new platform emerging well before anyone else. And how do you guys go about capitalizing the business? Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, it was... This is one of these companies that, um, you know, when you see something before anyone else does, it actually makes fundraising quite difficult. And we went to, we went up and down Sand Hill Road and we, um, we pitched a bunch of VCs and ev almost every single one of those VCs said no. They said, if you're not developing for a BlackBerry or Nokia, then you're not, you know, like you're not going to get any funding. And this includes all of the VCs that later on, maybe six months down the track, started iPhone focused funds. Um, so it's amazing what a little head start can do, um, both in creating an opportunity um, as an entrepreneur, but also in making it really difficult to get funding and to sort of find balance. So we ended up uh, bootstrapping it and having a bunch of angel investors actually um, that uh, you know wrote us some small checks, and from that we were able to build that company. So let's talk about this company too, because you know definitely first company first exit, so pretty nice. So you guys sold it to none other than than Disney. So that's incredible. I mean, what was that process like of of going through that transaction and and yeah, I mean, give us give us kind of like an insider you know access there, insider scoop of of what that journey was. Well, I think too, ma too many times entrepreneurs think that they're building something to exit it. And I think our philosophy always was, we want to build something that's going to be a big, hopefully world-changing company. And our focus always is, um, you know, how do we make the company bigger and bigger? And so we were actually out raising a Series B. By this stage, we were, you know, we had survived the global financial crisis of 2008. We had managed to turn the company um, into something that was, you know, modestly profitable. And we build a story around a whole bunch of other products that we're going to bring to this mobile, this new mobile um, ecosystem. And when we were out there fundraising a Series B, uh, Disney actually approached us um, to see if we were interested in an acquisition. Uh, and, and, and that process was the first time I went through M&A with a large company. I think Disney is probably even a more um, complicated business as it relates to acquisitions, a lot of due diligence, a lot of personal due diligence. Um, and, uh, and it was really just at the very last minute that we decided that we would sell rather than um, raise that Series B. And what was that process like going through that transaction? Because as they say, going through an acquisition is like experiencing a loss in the family. You know, people talk about like the, you know, how amazing is doing the exit and all of that stuff. But you know, it also, it's, it's kind of like you, you experience the loss because I, I, especially on your first company, to a certain degree, I mean, we are all entrepreneurs and, and on that first go at it, you really feel like you are the company. You have like, like your identity is there. 
So, so how was that for you as well? Well, it was an unusual situation. You know, like most companies, I had a co-founder and I was the COO and the co-founder was the CEO. So if we disagreed on a decision, um, you know, he had sort of the carrying vote, should we say. And so uh, when we sold the business, he obviously, he, he was more interested in selling than I was. Um, he had had a couple of really big, like hyped businesses that ended up not um, exiting. And so I think he was a little bit no more nervous about that. Uh, for many years, I had some resentment about it, you know, because we saw subsequently how much bigger the mobile market actually grew. And, and I'm sure the company may well have been bigger had we held on. But I've also, you know, now at the more mature version of myself realized just how, how hard a decision that was for, for my co-founder um, and just how kind of easy it was for me to be able to say, well, whatever happens, not my fault. Um, you know, I can sort of have it both ways. And I thought that was a little bit unfair. Um, and subsequently, when I sold companies where I've been the CEO, I've really felt like I understood a lot more that tension, if that makes sense. So in your case, the transaction happens. You joined Disney and you were there for a little bit over a year, perhaps, you know, working on the integration. And then eventually you moved to Paris. And I think that Paris gave you great things. You know, he gave you your wife. He gave you knowing, you know, coding. You know, you taught yourself how to code. And then also it gave you, you know, the possibility of starting your next business because as an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. So tell us about this next thing. Go at it. Yeah, so I um I moved to Paris uh during my time working at Disney. I actually were running some of their studios over in Europe. And so I was traveling frequently through um various different cities in Europe and on one of those trips I met the person who is now my wife. I ended up moving to Paris. I thought I would just do angel investing and just sort of hang out and not do very much. Um but I quickly found that that was for the stage I was at in my career was something that was actually really boring. Uh, and so I did the one thing that I felt was missing in my entrepreneurial portfolio, which was I wanted to really understand how to build product. And that meant I had to learn how to code. So I sat down and started teaching myself. I even employed another couple of uh, engineers, a front-end engineer and a back-end engineer to teach me front-end and back-end engineering. And of course, because I don't like learning lessons sort of in the abstract, we, all these lessons were in the context of building a new company um, that was a voice activated search company called Zap. And I remember about six months into doing my own coding um, education that I looked up and around me, I had four or five people and I realized that I sort of accidentally started another company. And, uh, and so I worked on that for a couple of years over there in Paris, which was an interesting challenge relative to Silicon Valley. And what was what was what was the challenges? What were some of the challenges that you saw on building a company in Europe versus you know building a company in the U.S.? Well, I think the thing that people don't really talk about is just the effect of culture on um, people inside the company. Um, what do I mean by this? So, and, and there's good and bad to this, by the way. This is not sort of a, there's no right answer, but America really has a culture of you know we of sort of like making your own luck, working hard. Um, following your dreams. And, you know, if you start a company in America and you tell your friends and everyone around you, they're really excited. If you join a company that's potentially changing the world, everyone that you tell is really excited about that. They understand that you have to work hard. When you move to France, I found even, you know, there's a younger generation of people that absolutely have this entrepreneurial energy. And I would say the same probably is true of Spain. 
from what I know about um, Spanish culture too. Um, and they're really excited and they're actually building really cool stuff. The problem a little bit um, for me was, you know, when you bring on people as employees in those markets, um, they're still in some way affected by the culture around them. Uh, and so, you know, I'll give you a simple example of this. Um, when you have a web business, you know, it's on 24-7. If a website breaks, you know, the business is closed and someone needs to go and fix that. And I remember oftentimes you would reach out at like 7 o'clock on a Friday and say, hey, the website is broken. We need to fix it. And it would just be impossible to find the engineers. Or if you did, they were very grumpy about doing it. And I learned afterwards, one of them actually confided in me that they were really excited to help and work hard. But all their friends around them were telling them just how silly they were that, you know, this company was taking advantage of them. And that's like the difference of culture, I think, is if everyone around you just doesn't value sort of like company building and, and you know, the effort that goes into that, it becomes really hard, I think. It's really difficult for employees to sort of give the same way that they do in the U.S. So it was a different culture. It's changing for sure. Um, the other big difference was the, the fundraising environment, at least in, in France back then, which was eight or nine years ago, just really didn't exist. There are maybe two or three angel investors. And the way they invested was very different to the way they did in the U.S. In the U.S., people want to understand what your story is what your vision is, how you're going to change the world. In Europe, I found that people really wanted to see your five-year cash flow statement and you know, understand all of the numbers behind business, which fundamentally are irrelevant um, when it comes to investing. I think that's slowly changed as we've got like more successes coming out of Europe or Australia or these other secondary markets. But still, the bias is there for um, you know, looking at investments the same way you look at financial investment, which is just not the right way to think about startups. So in this case, you know, for you guys, I mean, it sounds like the four-year mark, you know, was an important one for you because four years in, you know, you decided that um, it was time, you know, to, um, to, to perhaps, you know, turn page. And, and in this case, you guys, you know, went through a transaction, a company called Evara that uh, bought the business and you also did the you know, vesting and resting with them, you know, helping with the integration. Now, in this case, you know, with this experience, what was the lesson that you that you took with you? Well, I think the original sin of the sec my second business was um, really two things. The first is uh, when you have a successful startup as an entrepreneur, you can tend to assume that a lot of that's the sort of the the main reason why that company was successful was you. And you completely discount the effect of luck or timing. Um, and so when you go out and then build a second company as an entrepreneur that's exited the first one, I think you can, you're much more likely to commit the second sin, which is um, really focusing on something that I was very passionate about, which at the time was travel, and ignoring completely the market dynamics. And so that second company, um, really was sort of doomed from the very beginning by my sort of the mental approach I brought to the business itself and the space. And uh, we were very lucky that we were able to turn it into a slightly profitable company and able to exit, ex exit it handily. But, um, but really, it taught me in some ways that, you know, I would probably never invest in a second time entrepreneur who's had a success the first time, because they're just way too cocky. And secondly, it, it made me very skeptical about the idea of like investing or investing yourself, your time in businesses that you are very passionate about. I think being a little bit 
having a little bit of distance from the idea is actually really valuable. And it's hard to do if it's a space that you, you, you just are really into. Um, so, so I've often told people, I tell myself and I tell people who ask me for advice that it's often a little bit dangerous to follow your passion 100%. Um, and that for me, at least my passion was, you know, I've, I've learned that my passion is really in building businesses and solving problems and, uh, not all problems are created equal. I hear you. I think that that emotional attachment can be dangerous too. So, um, I guess. I guess for you, once this was said and done and you finalized, you know, doing the integration, then you decided it was time to pack up the bags and come to the U.S. So what triggered that and, and what happened next for you? Well, that was easy. At that point, I really felt like I'd learned some lessons and I really wanted to apply them in the context of another company. So uh, and and having had a difficult time, at least myself personally in Europe, I, I thought that it was time to do that back in Silicon Valley. So in 2017, I moved back. Even though I thought I'd learned the lesson about not working on something you're passionate about, I immediately started working on a genetics company that was an area that I was very fascinated by and, again, had very bad market dynamics. And I remember I was only three months in. I'd not raised any money, thank God. And I just looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, man, you're doing it again. Um, and in that moment, I said, I will build another company. But for this company and from this point on, I will never build, an, I will never build a company that's my idea. And so I, I basically sent an email to all my friends, everyone on LinkedIn and said, I, I want to build something. I don't know what it is. If you've heard anyone that has an idea looking for someone to help build it or, um, or you've heard a great idea, reach out to me. And dozens of people reached back and connected me with uh, as, uh, tons of really fascinating and tremendous people. I explored two or three things and eventually just fell in love with uh, the company or the technology that's now uh, my current company called Pernuvo. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. When it comes to ideas, you know, how have you, you know, come to the point where you're able to really validate or see whether an idea has legs or not? 
Well, I think to start with, again, if it's not your idea, you don't have any um, skin in the game. And I even trained myself during that period. I said, I would go to the Starbucks every day and I would think through an idea that someone had presented to me. So someone that had messaged me or emailed me and said, okay, I got you know this idea. And I would actually think it through as if I was an investor. What do I like about the idea? What do I not like about the idea? Would I invest in the idea? Because fundamentally as an entrepreneur, the decision that we're making is um, you know, where are we going to invest our time for X number of years? And that's kind of the that's the finite commodity that we all have to invest with. And I found that that mentality was very freeing because at the end of the day, I could just say, actually, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. And then the next day I would start again on some other idea. And because they weren't my ideas, I was much more open to getting feedback and talking to folks, um, uh, doing a lot of due diligence before I sort of jumped in. Pranuvo, my current business, I probably due diligence for like two or three months before I even uh, got involved, talking to tons of doctors and investors and entrepreneurs. And, um, and uh, you know, and it was only through that process that I really c- came to see the opportunity. And why did you feel, or at what point did you realize that the opportunity was meaningful enough for you to jump? Well, this is sort of an interesting one. It's funny because for your listeners that don't know who Pranuvo is, so we do cancer and disease screening. Um, using a uh, very specialized MRI. So my first company was the first mobile company that ended up being a mobile gaming company. And my current company is a, is a very uh, medically focused, um, life-saving uh, screening company. Both these companies are, could not be more different and could not be more similar. Um, they're both, they were both really kind of creating these new categories. So whereas we saw at Tapulus that the mobile phone was going to be that the iPhone was more than just a phone. It was a whole new platform. Um, what we learned at Pranuvo was that these machines, that uh, these MRI machines uh, that people typically use to diagnose problems like uh, MRIs of the shoulder or the knee or the head after a car crash or something like this, actually there's this other use case for this product, which is 100 times bigger, which is screening. Um, and just like my first company, when I went out and spoke to a lot of investors, I got a very, very um, sort of like broad, I guess, kind of like diagnosis, for want of a better word, of the underlying business uh, idea. And I've come to learn that actually, as an investor and as an entrepreneur, you can think of almost every company as fitting on like a normal distribution. Um, so what I found is it's quite easy to tell the good companies from the bad companies. It's actually really, really, really hard to tell the standout amazing companies from the worst companies that you've ever heard. And so the first lesson I sort of, or the first sort of lesson I taught myself was, well, where is this company in the spectrum? Because if it's in the, in the meat of the normal distribution, in the middle part, it's not going to be a transformational company. It has to be in the tails. And then the difficulty is figuring out which tail is it in. Uh, and you know, I've been lucky enough in Silicon Valley to be to see some of the early pictures of companies like Uber, for example, where, you know, you're like, this is the worst idea ever. No one in California would want to sit in someone else's car. You know, everyone drives and has their own cars. You know, so you know that that's you know, so so you so I had a very visceral negative reaction, um, and I think I'm looking for that as a signal. You know, some people love it, some people really hate it. Then you know that you're somewhere in the tails of that distribution. And uh, then it's up to you to figure out which tail you're in. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's definitely a tough one, you know, when you're creating categories. Um, so one thing here, you know, that I think will be great for the listeners. I mean, you were you were touching on it and, and, and some of the good stuff that you guys are doing, but just so that they're able to get it, what ended up being the business model of Prenu? How do you guys make money? It's a pretty straightforward business, to be honest. Um, but we take, we took this technology, MRI, um, that's usually focused on just imaging one part of your body at a time in a diagnostic way. And we decided we're going to build an entire business around screening you from head to toe. And, and through that screening, we're able to diagnose cancer at stage one, aneurysms that could also kill you, um, and about 500 other conditions. So we can really help you understand um, you know, what's going on with your underlying health in a way that the health system, which is very reactive, cannot. Um, that's, the idea is very simple. The execution of the idea is very hard. Um, it involved rebuilding hardware, software, business models, um, and, uh, and figuring out if there's a market for this and will, are people willing to pay for it? So it's, um, it's, it's been a very difficult challenge, but at the same time, it's been the most rewarding time in my life because I get to see directly the impact of what it is that we're doing on people's lives. And there's and, nothing more rewarding than that. And also, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. So, uh, hey, you know, this is not your first rodeo. So I'm sure that you were very picky when it came to, uh, you know, making sure that you got the right people, you know, in the journey with you. Well, we had, again, very similar situation, though, as we did with uh, Tapulus. So when we first started raising money, um, we were located just in Canada and one clinic in Vancouver. So good luck trying to get a VC to go up to Vancouver to go and even experience the thing. Um, you know, we tried to raise money from VCs, even, you know, VCs I knew um, that had invested in me before. And they went back to the people that they considered experts, which were either their personal physician or they had a, a GP in the fund that was a physician. And the physician's view was that MRI is just for diagnostics. Screening is a silly idea. The same way, you know, 10 years ago, people thought that the iPhone was just another model of, of uh, mobile phone. So we ended up bootstrapping. We got bank loans. We opened up a clinic in um, Silicon Valley. And it was then when we were screening all of the VCs that they could sort of suspend their disbelief, that they could suspend the sort of the, uh, you know, what they had been hearing from their physicians and realize just how transformational the idea really was. Uh, and and at that, from that point on, it was quite easy to raise money. And you guys have raised money from really amazing people. How much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, close to 80 million total. So most of it was in this last round that we did, the 70 million. And, I mean, you have Felicis, you have uh, Ann Wojcicki from 23andMe, founder of 23andMe, Tony Fadel, you know, the, the guy behind, you know, all the amazing Apple products, you know, that work closely with uh, with Steve Jobs, even Cindy Crawford. I mean, you have like all types of uh, interesting profiles in there. So how do you, how were you able to uh, to meet these people and, and get them on board? Well, it's funny, like um, if you ask people, and I'm sure you do on your show, ask people for advice on raising money. I think the normal advice is try and raise as much money as you can from as few investors as possible because, you know, there's this idea that investors are mainly annoying things on the path to building a great company. Um, we took a different approach with Pranuvo. We, we just said we're, we're building this really amazing technology and it can really impact lives in a positive way. And once you screen enough people, you start to see, I mean, people start to know someone whose life we've, we've saved. 
and uh, and you know, so we took this opposite approach, which is, you know, we we've welcomed in a lot of investors. I think we have thirty or forty investors that really are massive champions of the business, and they really help us um, out there in the market change sort of hearts and minds, and um, introduce this new concept of preventative health to a much wider audience. So. Most of it, I have two or three financial investors. Most everyone else is an entrepreneur uh, or a successful business person or a celebrity uh, who is just really passionate about what we're doing. So what have you learned about activating your investors to be able to get the most out of them? I, I mean, if I'm being t totally honest, I think the primary lesson here is it's really up to the CEO and founder how much you leverage the investor network that you have. I don't think I would not give myself an A plus at this. I have a network that is fantastic when I need them, but I don't reach out anywhere near as much as I should. Um, and uh, and I I think uh, too often people completely ignore investors as a sounding board for what you're working on or a way to connect you with other folks out there. So we've started to do this a lot more as we've grown the business across the US. Um, but it's actually on my to do list to do a much better job of this. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Andrew, and you wake up in a world where the mission or perhaps the vision of Pranuvo is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, I mean, that's what keeps us up at night, to be honest. I mean, the company is super mission driven. Everyone is really excited about what's going on, um, which as CEO just makes it such a joyful place to be running. Um, you know, the fundamental thing that we're trying to solve here is that our health system in the US is 96% reactive care. Um, so out of a $4.5 trillion budget, 96% of it is spent on people that are already sick in hospitals. And, um, and so what we wanted to do was not just offer some incremental improvement, but offer a completely different view of how healthcare could be. Um, the screenings that we do, uh, you know, they start at $1,000, they go to $2,500. But if I even just focus on that $1,000 scan, when I think about our cost of providing that, we could probably screen every person in the US, uh, every adult, I should say, every two years for under $50 billion, which is a huge amount of money. But at the same time, we spend about $130 billion just on late-stage cancer drugs. Uh, so imagine a world where we caught every cancer at stage one and you didn't need any of those drugs, or we caught any chronic condition, which is the other big money pit of our health system at an early stage, then um, you wouldn't necessarily need to spend all that money. And, and I think, what does that future look like? It's a future where um, people, no one has to die from advanced disease because everything is caught early. And our healthcare system is probably half the size in terms of budget. Because we're catching stuff so early when the interventions are not only more successful, but they're actually a lot cheaper as well. So, uh, so you know, and, and on, a more, on a more personal and day-to-day -day level, what that looks like is, you know, saving lives day in and day out, which is what we're doing right now. I love that. Let's, let's talk about the, the, the past because we'll be talking about the future. So let's talk about the past, but do it with a lens of reflection. Of reflection. Imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. Maybe to that time that you were miserable going back to Madrid, you know, and obviously miserable, at least, you know, drinking good wine and, and having good tapas. But uh, to that moment where, you know, you were wondering, you know, hey, I want to do something on my own, too. Uh, and imagine you had the opportunity of going back 
and being able to sit down with your younger self. You know, maybe you were able to to have a sit down there at Plaza Mayor in Madrid, you know, beautiful scene. And let's say that, that younger self, you know, actually listen. So imagine, you know, you were able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Um, it's hard to have a really short answer to it. Um, I think, I mean, I just would have wanted to, I mean, do it, being an entrepreneur is sort of like jumping off a cliff to some extent. You know, it's almost impossible to arrive at being an entrepreneur through some sort of rational spreadsheeting of like, what are the pros and cons of doing what I'm currently doing for longer and being an entrepreneur? Financially, the expected value of becoming a director at McKinsey was way higher than working as an entrepreneur. And so often people reach out to me from McKinsey or from law firms and say, I really, I'd love to have a coffee. Let's talk about being an entrepreneur. You know, what, you know, I'd love to be an entrepreneur. Can you talk me into it? And I have such a hard time doing that because it is sort of a leap of faith. Does that make sense? And either you're sort of, your brain is sort of wired for that in some ways or it's not. And I'm so lucky that I actually, I, you know, for me, that leap of faith was because no tech company wanted to hire me when I came back to the Silicon Valley after McKinsey. So I was, you know, I'm very grateful for them for not hiring me because I may well not have made that leap. So it's a really, really hard thing. It's a decision that someone would never regret, but I understand it's really hard. And the people in particular that are sort of vacillating over this question tend to be people that are high achievers. Um, and, you know, their low risk path is not a bad you know, doesn't lead to bad outcomes. And that makes it harder and harder. Um, sometimes, you know, more specifically, what I would tell myself is when you are young, um, your the normal sort of financial advice that people give you is invest in stocks, not bonds. <laughs> you know, invest in high-risk assets, don't invest in low-risk assets. When you're retiring, invest in bonds and not stocks because, you know, if you get wiped out, it's a much bigger problem. I think that philosophy also is a valid one as we think about our career. I think when you're young, that's the time to actually take risks with your career. Because if you wipe out, you've got plenty of time to recover. Um, and I don't think people, I don't think I thought myself as a younger person about my life that way. Does that make sense? And, and that's the general advice I give other younger people and I would give my younger self, which is, you know, this is a time to take risks when you don't have family, when you are, you know, you can, if you need to, you can eat two-minute noodles, um, and it just becomes harder and harder to take those risks for various reasons um, as you get older and older in life. Wow. Very profound, Andrew. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can message me for free there. That's probably the easiest thing. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. My handle is my name. And I'm pretty active there, especially if people have questions about uh, you know, entrepreneurship or uh, the, co the co company for new that I'm currently working at. Amazing. Well, hey, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. I really wish, uh, you, I wish you the best. And also, I wish your listeners the best as they sort of think through this decision around, you know, what impact they're going to leave on this earth um, in the one career that they have. And, I, you know, I think I'm super excited for this next generation of companies that are coming out now. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, 
share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.